Hey, y'all, before we start the show, this week I have enlisted my colleague, my friend, and the editor of this show, Jordana Hokeman, uh, and her son, Ian, to, um, well, they'll just take it from here. Do you remember what show I work for? Mm, it's been a minute. And when we turn on NPR, what kinds of things do we hear? Um, I hear about the weather forecast. You hear about the weather forecast? Yeah. Didn't we learn about, what is that, what the newest Mars rover? InSight. Yeah, what's InSight doing? Mm, Sending message, showing pictures to Earth. Showing pictures to Earth? Yeah. So that's the kind of cool story that we hear on NPR, right? Yeah. Yeah, do you like those kinds of stories we hear? Yeah. Yeah. So what, you know what we want to have people do? We want to have people donate to uh, their NPR member stations. Do you think they should do because that? Because they like me so much. Not because they like you, honey, because they like NPR so much. Because they think all that was from them. Because they think that it will help us make really cool shows and, and be able to give them really good and important information. Okay. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Should we say goodbye? Yeah. Goodbye, Sam. Goodbye. Many thanks to Ian. The link to donate to support public radio and this show is donate.npr.org slash Sam. Help Ian out. He likes those space stories on the NPR, okay? Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Daddy. This week on the show... NPR reporter Elise Hugh and Wall Street Journal reporter Eric Schwartzel. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today, we are bringing you a very, very special year end episode of the show. Usually, every weekend, we help you catch up on the week that was. This time, we're going to catch up on the year that was. And to do that, I needed two uh, very good friends of the show, two heavy hitters, as Aunt Betty said, two guests here today. Elise Hugh, correspondent for NPR News, covering the future the at future. NPR West. I. <laughs> I want that beat. I wanted the title Future Correspondent, but then it looked like I was an intern. Like one oh, day right, 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 right. Correspondent. Aspiring Correspondent. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. on my card, I'm going to switch it to Correspondent, comma, The Future. I love oh, it. Nice. And Eric Schwartzel covering the film industry at The Wall Street Journal. Hey, thank you for having me. Me, Elise, and Stevie wrapping up the year here. Yeah, we're also joined by Stevie (laughs) Nicks here in studio. I'm playing Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. One of my favorites. Apparently, there's actually been some reporting this year that this has been the year of Fleetwood Mac. Steve Rousseau, this reporter at Dig, he felt like a bunch of his friends, young people, were talking about Fleetwood Mac, so he called up Spotify. Spotify told him that over the past three years, adjusted for user growth, the under 35 crowd is now playing Fleetwood Mac 58% more than they did two years ago. And uh, the increase in listenership with young fans is bigger than that with older fans. The kids love Fleetwood Mac. That's so interesting because it wasn't in like a movie or anything like that, That's what I was going to say. Was it driven by some sort of movie? I think that one, every cohort of young people has a moment in which they discover Fleetwood Mac and how great they are. (laughs) And this is just like the crest of that wave. 
Um, I also think that the weirdness and awfulness of our current news cycles uh, increases the nostalgia that we all have just to hear the stuff that our parents liked and that is soothing like this song. And I also think that like when you peel back the layers, Fleetwood Mac as a band and what they represent is really 2018. This polished, veneered display, but underneath it, pure chaos. Resentment, <laughs> yes. tensions. Makeups to breakups. Yes, exactly. Drama. And but lots they, of tambourine. <laughs> it's really aspirational, though, because they do come together and create brilliant art. In spite even of they the chaos. hate each other while they're doing it, right? I think the art that comes out of this era is going to be really interesting, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Because and of it, the chaos. Exactly. And especially <laughs> next year because of the lag time. Right, uh-huh. like it, it takes a while for, <laughs> for the case to, to be made. Up. Right, yeah. next year I think we'll, it'll really come into focus. Yeah. All right, uh, here's how this episode is going to go. Usually we describe our week of news in just three words, but today the stakes are higher. You must each describe your year of news in only three words. And then in a bit, we'll check in with Liliana Mason. She's a political scientist and author who will attempt to make sense of our weird, strange, wacky year in politics. After that, we'll play a very special game, a year-end game, deluxe edition of Who Said That? Sound good? Sounds great. So excited. So Elise Hsu, who actually has just been back in the States from South Korea for a few months, uh, what are your three words to describe your year in 2018? Yeah, so my perspective is a little bit different because I've only been a resident of America um, since about Labor Day. And before that, I was living abroad as the sole correspondent. And S-O-U-L? Or that's right. S-E-O-U-L? <laughs> I was the sole, sole correspondent. So S-O-L-E-S-E-O-U-L. The sole, sole correspondent with a lot of yes, soul. I'm sole excited to talk to you today. (laughs) (laughs) So um, my three words are globalism in crisis. I wanted it to be globalism on the ropes, but that was four words. Uh, But this notion that, you know, Brexit and the Trump election kicked off a tough time for Western liberalism and this idea that countries are interdependent and foreign exchange was good and importing and exporting was good. Uh, That idea started getting challenged at least in the Western world in a big way in 2016. But those trends have really continued Mm -hmm. in 2018. We've seen Donald Trump call himself a nationalist. um, But we've also seen across the world, uh, Putin in Russia consolidating his power, Xi Jinping in China becoming a ruler for life. We've seen the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is a right wing populist, authoritarian nationalist who says that he supports torture. Um, But also we're seeing um, authoritarianism on the rise in Hungary in Poland, people just, um, especially in states like that, like former Soviet states, really challenging the institutions like courts uh, that would challenge them. When I hear you go through this list of mm-hmm. countries becoming more authoritarianistic, mm-hmm. not the right word, becoming authoritarian more authoritarian-ish, mm-hmm. yeah. right. it almost seems to challenge the entire post-World War II world order. I mean, like there was this moment or we got taught about in grade school, like, After the war, all the countries came together. Democracy would win. Capitalism would win. Globalism would win. And now you have world leaders challenging some of those fundamentals and also voters when they approve things like Brexit challenging that too. Yeah. And I think that one thing that's super interesting is that there was always this assumption that liberal democracy would be the preferred 
method and right? the eternal method in the eternal method right like the end of history right like it, this is this is what we're all going mm-hmm. to to accept but you have countries like China exporting this kind of new brand of governance right that's a mix of capitalism and authoritarianism and nationalism and nationalism right? um, at a time when America's model doesn't look the most stable yeah, and the old idea was, hey, let's break down walls, and that will lead to an unprecedented transfer of information and goods and services and ideas. And that is true, but the rising tide didn't lift all ships, right? It created a lot of economic inequality and winners and losers. And that allows for populist leaders who are charismatic to come in and say, us versus them. In the midst of all of this, though, like there have been these larger, bigger questions about in this moment of flux for the entire world, like who's in charge? Some of the things that an American president would customarily do to show that they are leader of the free world, Trump doesn't like to do those things. Uh, and you've seen an ascendant China. Am I weird to ask, Elise, right now, like who is really in charge? And is it harder to know that now as opposed to, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago? I do think China is worth watching. Um, We are seeing a rise of Asia and just a rise of the East in a way that's unchecked in the way that it was under the Obama administration and a stronger NATO and a stronger UN just a couple of years ago. You know what's coincidentally? I went on a double date yesterday to the Nixon Library. Hmm. Well, okay, which, pause right there. Which we gotta, was, we I mean, I know, for a I know. Second. I don't mean to brag, but I did. And <laughs> it was fascinating. And there was this whole exhibit on Nixon in China, yeah. and Kissinger in China. And it was in the mid 70s. And one thing that really conveyed was how crazy it was to think about a U.S. president going to China, right? Like, it was so closed off to the world. It had 750 million people, but it was almost like the black hole of the globe, right? Speaking of authoritarian nationalists. Exactly. And here we are now, what, a little over 40 years later, and suddenly China seems like it has a place on the world stage that the U.S. once did. I mean, its pivot in 40 years is remarkable. This trend of globalism in crisis, of creeping authoritarianism, is there any end in sight to it, Elise? I think there's going to have to be a reckoning. I mean, <laughs> Whoa. because, sounds, sounds because what we're watching is manufacturing jobs, right, which used to be um, helpful in lifting the developing world into the middle class. Those are going to go away because they're getting replaced by automation and technological innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And unless there is more of an evening out, right, there needs to be less economic inequality in a lot of these countries. Unless that happens, we are headed for some sort of reckoning. All right, Eric, are you going to cheer us up with your three words? I wish I I brought some more optimism (laughs) Uh to the proceedings. but It's okay. My three words are terms of service. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you look at the past year, we've really seen a referendum on tech companies. And when it comes to how everyday users think about their relationship with tech companies. Which I do those companies. They're the fangs, right? Well, there's the fangs, right? There's Facebook, Amazon. Would that be Netflix? Netflix. And Google. Yeah. But um, there's also, I think, Twitter's in there uh-huh. um, for sure. I mean, like, it's really almost overwhelming when you think about in the past 12 months, the number of scandals and the amount of drama we've had. And they've all around had tech companies. They've all had them, whether it's how does Twitter handle the president, mm-hmm. right? Or Amazon announces they're building a second headquarters in New York City. And the, the conversation immediately shifts to how much public money should they get mm-hmm. and whether or not that's unfair. It almost feels like how, you know, like there was a moment in the 80s where like 
the captains of finance and stock market were like revered and the superheroes of Wall Street. And then all of a sudden we were like, oh, they're actually doing some bad things. <laughs> Is Silicon Valley having that reckoning where the boys who were ascendant kind of have to deal with the fallout now? And if so, what does that fallout look like? Because in spite of all of the stories about how they're behaving badly, Congress doesn't want to regulate them just yet. I mean, who is in charge? Who well, is going to keep tabs? Well, I think there has been some fallout because for a long time, traditionally, the Democrats were on the tech company side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now it seems like both sides are mad at them for different reasons. Mm-hmm. The Republicans are mad for a number of reasons. The Democrats are also mad in large part because of all of the news that's broken since since the election when yeah. Facebook's role in it, right? But like... Can Congress come together to regulate them? Because right now they haven't. I mean, oh, yeah. but the, in the Europe, they're already, yeah, the EU is already regulating these tech companies and being far more, or they're applying a lot more scrutiny to Facebook than the United States has. The United States um, Congress is problematic largely because of the demographics of Congress. I don't know if y'all saw Mark Zuckerberg get questioned, but it was painful. Well, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. And I think people who understand and are more digitally native might be able to better regulate and better look at these issues and care about them. But, like, there's not this wave of people turning off geolocation on their phones. I haven't seen people stop using Google or stop buying stuff on Amazon. In we some ways, these things are yet. part of I do think it's getting very loud, though. Really? I think it's getting very loud. And I think people's sort of perception and understanding of data and how they are the product is... It's definitely more savvy for it's sure. More savvy for sure. I don't think I don't think the dam has burst yet, yeah. right? But it seems like we're getting there. Though, haven't you noticed though, even among your friends and peers, that Facebook uses I use Facebook less. I like oh for sure. N- this year compared to last year, yeah. I lose. Fa- I use Facebook maybe twenty five percent as much. And now I have a creep out factor. I have that creep factor when I get reminders about hey, this is what you were doing seven mm-hmm. years ago because it's a constant reminder to me that. They know everything about me and on the dates that I posted what. I mean, but also it's like I spend less time on Facebook now, but I spend more time on Instagram. Right, which is and Instagram is owned by Facebook, and it does the yeah. same thing now. Instagram is sending you your memories, yeah. too. And I will say there's some weird stuff that I'm getting like that is just freaking me out even more. One thing that Google Maps does now on my smartphone that I never asked it to do, it makes note of where I park my car. And it'll say, you parked here. Yeah. You know what? I find that quite helpful, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As someone who has lost his car before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys, I have three words to sum up my year of news. And it would be, time has stopped. Because I think you felt this coming on in 2016. It got worse in 2017. But now we've reached a point in our never-ending news cycles where you can never actually tell how much time has gone by, what time it actually okay. is, the days bleed into each other, the weeks bleed into different months. My, my news biological clock has stopped. Yeah. Because it can't keep up anymore. And the metabolism yeah. that There's... we take things in and receive them and discard them is crazy. Yeah. Well, time is elastic too, right? There's parts of the year that feel super long and then parts that feel like they rush by. But we have been in this chaos mode, I think, for a couple of years now. You know, when I was living abroad, for example, we were either 12 or 13 hours ahead of U.S. East Coast time. And I would have to sleep with a phone in a different room because... There are so many news cycles in the United States in a given day. (laughs) Had I kept my phone in my room, it'd just be like dinging all night. Oh, yeah. And like all of the data that we see about how news consumers feel about this, they are stressed. Mm -hmm. Um, So Pew asks folks a lot of the time how they feel about their news consumption trends. And 
Earlier this year, they found that about 7 in 10 Americans feel worn out by the amount of news there is these days. That is pretty much in line with 2016 and 2017 as well. It's like people are tired and they're newsed out. And I don't know. What is the fix? We're just sitting here in silence. Um, <laughs> I would say read a newspaper. Note, please note silence. I uh, would say read a newspaper. Honestly, like when I take time to read a You mean a, a hard paper, copy A hard copy yeah. of a newspaper. When I take time to read a physical paper that is not my phone and doesn't give me the option to scroll through seven different screens at once, I feel like I can put my phone down more throughout the day because I feel like I already have a baseline of knowledge to start my day with. I also think that newsrooms have to do a really good job of, in every story that we tell, giving our readers and listeners kind of context. context. There's so much like, this thing just happened, and not how did we get here, but, you know. Yeah, and I think um, to sort of, to the rush to the defense of the news industry, I think that <laughs> there have been a couple examples of that this year where the context has broken through and the story has slowed down a little bit. One, I think, was the, the, the reports on climate change. Yeah. Um, I think in others, I think, for the most part, coverage of immigration has been very um, methodical and responsible. Yeah. So I think that there are definitely examples where people have resisted the urge to rush on to the next thing. Yeah. I will say there have been a few times this year where I've just forgotten my phone at home and I end the day feeling better about the world. That's so, the other thing too. Is like you know, at least you mentioned like the like the a million alerts that you wake up mm-hmm. to. Like those those moments where you do step away for whatever reason, whether you're on vacation or you leave your phone at home, and you come back at the end of the day and you realize that there have been like seven mini scandals that you've not seen or digested, and it's and it's fine. Yeah, you're yeah, <laughs> like you haven't missed much of anything. We're gonna take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we'll play my favorite game. Who said that? I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Capital One. Here's Sarah Strauss, head of fraud at Capital One, on how the CreditWise app helps users take action after receiving one of its automatic credit alerts. It's not just an alert, but it's also here are the next steps that we recommend you do. And so hopefully that's giving our users the opportunity to feel empowered to go after the issue and resolve it. CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. Support also comes from You Need a Budget. Imagine getting the bills and just paying them, or forgetting when exactly payday is because it's inconsequential. What if an emergency wasn't an emergency because you had money saved to cover it? Their award-winning app and proven method will teach you how to gain total control of your money, get out of debt, and save more money faster. Find out why users call it life-changing. Try it free at youneedabudget.com. I'm Linda Holmes. There's more stuff to watch these days than you can ever get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we give you the lowdown on what's worth your time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is a special year-end edition of the show. I'm Sam Sanders here with Elise Hugh, correspondent at NPR West, covering the future. Oh, hi. Also here with Eric Schwartzel. He covers the film industry for the Wall Street Journal. Hello. Before we get back into the news news of the year, do either of you have any New Year's resolutions? I have one. Um, I would like to reconnect with my friends in person. 
So we You're were doing just talking it right now, mm-hmm. like right as in right <laughs> now. I'm already getting started on my 2019 resolutions. Uh-huh. No, I mean I think we do a lot of communication by Slack and by various messaging apps, right? But um, one thing I'm going to really work on in 2019 is actually trying to see my friends who are here in the United States and that I can get to pretty easily and spend quality time with them, not electronically. Yeah. I think that's a I think that's a great resolution. I have a little bit of a variation on that, which is um, being better at staying in touch, hmm. right? Which which is harder, right? Because you're not going to be seeing people in person as much. But I think trying to do a better job of staying in touch is is one of my resolutions. Yeah, I think my resolution will be one to cook more. Mm. It is so easy when you live alone to just be like. 10 bucks for pad thai. Right. It's yeah. actually worth it. Right. It's actually worth it. Don't have to but, clean up. Yeah. Cooking, one, it brings you down after a stressful day. Mm. It is very meditative and calming. You eat better when you do it. So I want to do more of that. Sounds good. One of my resolutions also next year is to not get into any arguments over politics with anyone that I know. Oh. And this is a season in which it feels like fights about politics are everywhere. Right? Is that necessarily a good thing, though? Because isn't collision actually helpful? Yeah, I was going to say, how do you delineate arguments and debates? If anyone raises their voice, i got to stop. I can't do it. <laughs> mm. That's my bar. Okay. That's my bar. But it's harder and harder to not raise your voice when you talk about politics today because um, our politics has been, as we know, more divided and seemingly more high stakes with everyone hating the other side more than ever before. Turns out there is actually data to back this up. Research shows that for the first time in more than 20 years, members of both parties hold strongly unfavorable views of their opponents. Uh, One political scientist who is an expert in this current season of political animus is Liliana Mason. She has a book out this year. It's called Uncivil Agreement, and it's all about just how and why we got this divided and this angry and what it might take to change that. I called up Professor Mason and said, how do we get so bad? How do we fix it? She talked me off the ledge. Professor Mason, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. I guess before we start, you uh, cover politics very closely. On a scale of 1 to 10, how crazy was this year in politics for you? Uh, I don't want to <laughs> outrule there being a worse, crazier year next year, so I'm going to go with like a 9.75. That is very specific. Yeah, there's always room. Yeah. So the title of your book is Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. First and foremost, tell me what you mean when you say that our politics is our identity. So a couple of things. Um, One is that um, partisanship is uh, increasingly behaving like a social identity. And social identity is any group that you feel identified with. Uh, And we used to think that party was something that we thought through. We were very rational. Um, And then in the last few decades, it's really started behaving more like a religion where, uh, you know, we feel like we're associated with the other people in the group. We defend them um, whenever they're being insulted or, or threatened. And we don't, uh, we don't convert. We don't leave the group uh, without huge amounts of pressure. Yeah. How did it get this way? And why did it get this way? The story that I tell really starts after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, yeah. when the Democrats passed the, the Civil Rights Act. And then a lot of Southern Democrats uh, were disaffected because of that. And so what we saw was a couple decades of conservative Southern Democrats gradually leaving the Democratic Party. 
And that generation of people, I think, ultimately became independents, and then their children were able to move to be Republicans. So race was that dividing line? Yes, racial attitudes and race. Gotcha. And then also in the 1980s and 1990s, um, the religious right became politically active. And so it wasn't just the party of white people. It was the party of white Christian people or white evangelicals very specifically. So the parties started to really become different socially. And when that happens, then people get very clear cues about which party they're supposed to be in. And those cues are very social. And so people become committed to the party in a way that they hadn't been able to during the 70s and 80s when all of these things were sort of in flux. Hmm. So then what does it mean if we're now in this political era where our parties are our identity? What does that do for the discourse? So one of the major problems is that when a social identity is really strong, the content of it becomes less uh, important. So if you think about two teams playing in the Super Bowl, um, one of them you're really, really rooting for. If they win, you feel fantastic, but you don't really care what they do after they win. Mm-hmm. And so when you turn these partisan identities into much more of a kind of you know sports-type competition, mm-hmm. um, accountability is reduced because we watch our party win. We feel very, very excited. But then if they do something we don't like, um, we're not going to leave them. And, yeah, and so, because it's your team. It's your, it's your family. Right, because having them lose is actually more painful to us than seeing them do something that's bad for the nation as a whole. So then if this it seems as if like some of this tribalization and identity politics is specific to this era and this time in our politics, but it's also just like human nature. Yeah. Like, has this always been with us? Has there been have there been times like this before in our history where it was just as bad? So the important thing is that, yeah, this is totally human nature and every single person is going to do this no matter what. I mean, there is, you know, it's it is kind of inevitable. Not only is it inevitable, but it's actually kind of good because that's how we make society. You know, we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have we wouldn't have society or civilization without a sense of who is us and who is them. And, you know, who who gets the resources from the group, you know, sort of on an evolutionary level. This makes sense. The problem is that some of our earliest um, you know, scholars of American politics and even sociologists and going all the way back actually to James Madison observed that our society is going to be stable as long as all of our social divisions are sort of crisscrossing. So uh, another person might be in your in-group religiously, but in your out-group politically. And what we've seen over the last few decades is that these cross-cutting identities have been disappearing. So, Give me an example. So if you take two uh, random Republicans right now, the chance that they're both white and Christian is quite high. Hmm. Now, the same is not true of Democrats. If you take two random Democrats, the chance that they're both the same race and the same religion is, is actually pretty low. Um, but the fact that we have effectively these two socially separate parties mm-hmm. um, means that there are very few opportunities for partisans to either think of each other as human beings or to spend social time with each other. Or, or to see commonality, I guess, what you're saying. Yeah. Given the crazy, crazy partisanship and identity politics and anger and hatred that we see right now in this political moment, what is the fix? You have laid out very clearly what the problems are. <laughs> is there yeah. any way out of this moment? Yeah. So the, the classic sort of cure uh, for intergroup conflict is well, one of them is contact. 
And mm. we don't have a lot of social contact between Democrats and Republicans. We tend to, you know, shop at different grocery stores and, and you know, wear different brands of clothing even. and Send our kids to different schools. Exactly. Um, drive different cars. Um, yeah. And so... One thing that we could do is try to get people together and what, you know, sort of the, a grand solution to this would be some sort of national service, right? Um, mm. In the military, racial animosity tends to be suppressed because everyone's working towards the mm-hmm. same goal. You and, all go through basic training together. Right. And you're all on the same side and you're all cooperating and you have to have each other's backs all the time. And so there's just no room for distrust and dehumanization of your fellow um, soldiers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be a war that does that, right? We could have any major project or any any collaborative situation in which you have people from both sides working together. um, That could help to make us understand each other as human beings in in another way. Um, Another thing would be, um, you know, something that, that we did, if you think about when we were sort of trying to, after the Civil Rights Act, right, trying to make it so that our society as a whole was less racist, we kind of set up some rules about, you know, what kind of portrayals of in and out group members you're allowed to have on TV, even mm. in like a sitcom level. Mm. Um, you know, the words people are allowed to use in public to describe in, in groups and out groups. And to at least pretend to have a civil discourse, kind of. And to Yeah, and to be tolerant. You know, just the difference between the language that my dad grew up hearing and the language that I grew up hearing, you know, as relates to race is massively different. Yeah. And so if there were to be some, you know, new sense of impropriety of treating our our fellow Americans who are our partisan opponents, but they're still our fellow Americans uh, and treating them in this derogatory way, you know, that could become more less socially acceptable through some means that I actually don't. I'm not I don't know. I don't know how to do it, but maybe the media, maybe the media can help. Professor Mason, thank you so much. Uh, your book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity, is out now. And I got to say, I love the cover. Two boxing gloves right there on the front. And they're tied together. Yes, as we all are as in this great American are. experiment. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. That's kind of sad. Yeah. I mean, especially this notion that we treat policy ideas and political parties like sports teams. Yeah. Because what we see with sports teams is you're so loyal that you're willing to forgive their cheating, a.k.a. Patriots, Deflategate, (laughs) Bill Belichick. Also, if you're a Boston sports fan, you'll torch a car whether your team wins or loses. That's the thing. And so if you think of it that way, um, you forget, like, you really dehumanize the opponents. Right. And you have these situations where the same news event is received as two different realities, right? Like the Kavanaugh hearings was, I think, probably the best example of that. Um, The thing that struck me about the interview was when she said that, you know, a lot of these groups now, it's you have, you face enormous pressure if you leave. Mm-hmm. It, almost she's describing like a cult. Um, <laughs> and it was so interesting because I was thinking about the primaries and how that's going to be a real issue for both parties, right? Oh like God. Democrats are, I mean, any Democrat. Have you been watching dim primary Twitter already? It's, can't, no, oh God, can't it's, say I have. Like, there's already this squabbling over like liberal purity amongst the 27,000 candidates for president. Exactly, Sam, to this point, right? Like, what is a Democrat? And I think on the Republican side, you'll probably have this question about whether Trumpism is Republicanism, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll play my favorite game, Who Said That? Special Year-End Edition. I'm so excited. I'm a little nervous. I'll be right back. 
Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Hey, y'all, Sam here once again asking for your money. Even a few dollars helps out your local public radio station, which in turn helps out this show. Give now at donate.npr.org slash Sam. Donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thank you. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This is a special year-end edition of the show. Instead of catching up on the week that was, we're catching up on all of 2018. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Elise Hugh, correspondent for NPR West, and her beat is The Future. Hello. Also here with Eric Schwartzel. He covers the film industry for The Wall Street Journal. Hey, Sam. All right. It is time for a very special year-end edition of my favorite game, Who Said That? Who said that? Um, so I'm going to read a quote from the news in 2018. It could come from anywhere in 2018. You have to guess who uttered that quote or at least get the story it comes from, get a few key words. The winner gets, I guess you can say that you won the year-end edition of Who Said mm-hmm. That. That's, okay, I'll take that. No bragging rights. Bragging I'll take rights. Your that, bragging yeah, yeah, yeah. Rights. I can update rights. my resume. And we made these kind of easy because I want to help y'all out. Okay, great. The last, great. Oh, I, think I the, never get any who said that's correct, but I just love this game. At least I think the first time I was on this show, my, one of my guesses was um, Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to say think France. About him a lot. Yeah. I'm going to say France for all my answers. France. I do France. think about France. Steve Harvey 1872. a lot. Yeah, right? The Strait of Gibraltar. What is the this? Treaty what, of Ubra- Utrecht. What is, what is the, the Strait of Gibraltar? <laughs> Daily Double. Ready? First quote. I really don't care. Do you? Melania Trump's oh, jacket. Yes. Yes. Zara. Yes. Zara. Zara no, Designer. No, my, my. Zara My designer is correct. I, feel like I might actually have to give that to her. The Zara, okay. the Zara designer. That is, the Zara that's inspired. Designer. That's right. inspired. So this quote comes from a Zara jacket that First Lady Melania Trump wore earlier this year in June. She was heading to New Hope Children's Shelter in McAllen, Texas, to visit immigrant children, including some of those who were separated from their parents uh, this year as part of a Trump policy. But the back of her jacket, which came from Zara, read, "I really don't care." Do you uh, cue a thousand think pieces saying that the first lady was being extremely callous to these children, to the viewing public, etc. But a few months later, she came out and said, actually, that was meant for the press. It was for the people and for the left wing media who are criticizing me and want to show them that I don't care. You could criticize whatever you want to say, you, you can say, but it will not stop me to do what I feel it's right. Should we give half of a point to each of you? Because one sure. got Zara and I one got I think that's fair. This, got could, this could end in a tie, and that would be a disaster, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you both have 0. 0.5 of a point. Oh, amazing. Uh, ready for the second quote? These are really easy, you guys. Okay. You're going to get this. Here's the quote. Beyonce's at the bar, so I said to Beyonce, did she really bite you? Y'all forgot oh, this, this story? Is this Tiffany Haddish yes. telling that story? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tiffany Haddish, the ascendant comic and actress of the moment. Yep. Uh, she was profiled by GQ earlier this year, and she talked about being at a party that Beyonce was also at, and she talked about seeing this moment where some other celebrity, an unnamed actress, bit Beyonce. So Tiffany crazy. saw it, went over to Beyonce and said, if you want me to, I will fight this woman for you. Beyonce, because she is the queen, said, right. no, don't do that. 
we're good. But uh, after this profile ran, the entire universe stopped for a good week or two to figure out who bit Beyonce. Stars are just like us. Was it Becky? I've never bitten. <laughs> Was it? I've Becky? never got. I've never gotten bitten at a party. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> All that to say, I'm pretty sure that uh, Tiffany Haddish will be getting no top secret party invites from Beyonce. Because if you, I mean, the first rule about Beyonce is loose lips sink ships. There right. you go. Snitches get stitches. Yep. Uh, you, we'll give you a full point for that, Eric. Thank you. So Good you have work. 1.5 I have the lead. now. Let's say that this last quote will be worth 1.5 oh. points. So oh, if no. Elise gets it, okay. we'll go to a tiebreaker. Okay. The stakes are high. Uh, the third one, we're just going to play you some audio, actually. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. It sounds like we're like Jodie Foster in contact. Yeah, we're, like, <laughs> we're like getting radio signals from like some distant star. How did y'all totally Aww. forget this, this story? But I think I do know it. I think okay, I do okay. know it. It's the um audio test, right? Yes. That like sounds different to different That's it. Oh, Thank you. Got you. It. Thank you. So Laurel versus Yanni was That's the blue right. dressed, white right. dress challenge of twenty eighteen. And it right. was the audio version. Yes. yes. So there I was... heard Laurel. I heard Laurel, too. Me, too. So there was this audio that hit Reddit earlier this year. Some high school students put it up from a vocabulary website that they heard on speakers and a computer at their school. Oh, I didn't know that was the I love how industrious they are. I know. So they were like, half the class here's Yanny, half the class here's Laurel. Internet, help us decide. It took the <laughs> internet great. by storm to the, to the point where major newsrooms were like manipulating the audio to help you hear both Yanny <laughs> and Laurel. <laughs> wow. It was, it's honestly, it was a nice way to not think about the news. And you know what? Those kids all got an easy college application essay. That How does that essay start? I, <laughs> Remember that time I you broke know, the internet? Right. We heard different things, but we came together. <laughs> Look at you. you as I will do you as went a, to college. You could wrap it up really nicely. <laughs> you really could. You really could. Um, Eric. I'm happy Thank to you. say the special year-end edition of Who Said That, you've won. Wow. This is this major. A, this is awesome. Thank How would you, you use your crown? Well, I'm going to ask for the LinkedIn endorsements from both of you. Okay. Yes, <laughs> on, on this. Uh-huh. This will be the only LinkedIn endorsement I will have ever written. <laughs> Thank but you. I'm that's proud all, to do it's it. all I need. I'm also going to do um, a testimonial on your friendster. Oh. <laughs> yep. I'm going to poke you on Facebook. Oh, sweetheart. <laughs> no. All right. Eric. Congrats. Thank you. Let's go out the way that we started with some music from Fleetwood Mac, 2018's hottest, newest, oldest band. (laughs) Congrats. I'm so excited to know that the youth are discovering Fleetwood Mac all for themselves. Oh, yeah. They're hope for the future. Did you go see them? They were here in L.A. No, I'm going to see them in Atlanta with my boyfriend in March. Okay, It's a whole big Take me with you. (laughs) I have seen them, though. I have seen them. And what I really appreciate is their self-awareness. They know why people come to see them. Stevie gets her tambourine out. She has that like she cape. twirls. <laughs> yep. I mean, they're like, we know exactly why you're here, yeah. and you're here to see Stevie and dress so- like a witch and twirl. <laughs> and they'll play that hits. up. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is Fleetwood Mac with Rhiannon. Fleetwood Mac has seen a near 60 percent increase in streams this year and last from young people. 2018. Who knew? All right, thank you both for doing this special year-end edition of our show. Uh, Elise Hsu, correspondent for NPR West, covering the future. I appreciate you here, so a happy 2019. Happy 2019 to all of you. Oh, yeah. Eric Schwartzel, covering the film industry for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much as well. Hey, thank you, Sam. Happy New Year.
All right, now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week we ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. This week, we went big. We asked you to tell us the best things that happened to you all year. I was very impressed. Let's take a listen. Hi, Sam. The best thing that happened to me this year was buying my girlfriend's engagement ring. It's coming next week. I can't wait. Hi, Sam. This is Joshua. And the best thing that happened to me this year was getting to roam around my beautiful partner Nina's home country of Switzerland. I went to Ireland this summer. I went to Iceland. My best friend and I went on our big bucket list trip to Australia, and it was amazing. The best thing that happened to me all year was being the first person on my mom's side of the family to graduate from college. The best thing that happened to me all year was I moved back to Pittsburgh with my husband to start law school. I got married to the love of my life. I got married at the end of September. I also voted in my very first election. Hi, this is Andrew in Portland, Oregon. The best thing that happened to me this year is that my parents and my little brother drove 1,437 miles to come visit me and my partner for Thanksgiving. My parents got to meet their grand dog. We made all the family recipes. And at the end of it all, my parents said, they understand why I like it here. Hi, Sam. This is Katie from Raleigh, North Carolina. And the best thing that happened to me this year was reconnecting with a student of mine from 10 years ago. When he was in my class, he'd been struggling. He slept a lot and he came to school hungry every day. When I realized what was happening, I made sure that he always had food in my classroom, but eventually he dropped out. I never knew what happened to him, but I thought about him all the time. And then earlier this year, out of nowhere, I got an email from what turned out to be his wife, who he met in my class, and they came to visit me and introduced me to their beautiful daughter. It was an incredible experience to see how they found each other, how they helped each other, and how happy they were, most importantly. Happy New Year. Have a great holiday season, Sam, and thanks for your show. Thanks. Bye. Thanks to all those listeners, Margaret, Joshua, Rachel, Susan, Emily, Julie, Mark, Kelsey, Andrew, and Katie. And I want to take one quick second to thank one of the best parts of my year, our listeners. Thank you all for hanging with this show for all 2018. I'm looking forward to going even further and higher in 2019. Okay, we're back with a regular weekly wrap next Friday. And on Tuesday, we're going to bring you an encore episode of my conversation with the esteemed Broadway actress and television star, Jennifer Lewis. You know her from Blackish. Uh, it was one of my favorite chats from last year. Enjoy that and Happy New Year. Talk to you in 2019.